Welcome to the Sleepy Cues Podcast, where Linda Schmolowitz and Jessica Suiki will share answers to all your questions related to your children's sleep and parenting of young children. We are both certified gentle sleep coaches. Thanks for tuning in to hear the answers to the many questions that come up with the families we work with. Hi, welcome to the Sleepy Cues Podcast. I'm Jessica Sawicki with Linda Schmulowitz, and we have a special guest with us, Lena Acosta. She's a psychotherapist and a child development expert. So welcome, Lena. We're so happy you're here with us. Can you introduce yourself? Tell our listeners a little bit about you, what you do, where you live. Yes. So as you said, I am Lina Costa Sandal. I am the owner and founder of Stop Parenting Alone. And Stop Parenting Alone is a parenting education and social emotional learning consultation program that I run here in Miami, Florida. But I also get the wonderful chance to speak nationally with Telemundo broadcasts. And I also just finished a social emotional learning curriculum book for Macmillan Education. My background, I have a master's in clinical psychology, but I got it because I became a parent and I'm crazier (laughs) than most people. And, you know, in my 31st year of life, I went back to school and I got a master's in clinical psychology because I knew that I was going to mess up my daughter. So like I said, I'm crazy. So I went and got a master's. And in the process, since I had a toddler and a pregnant belly, while I was getting my master's, I specialized in infant mental health. And I also specialized in something called interpersonal neurobiology, which is the study of sociology, psychology, biology, and neurology, and how they all intersect with one another. And I've just made it my life's purpose to help parents and adults that work with children just fall in love with the journey of caregiving because, you know, sometimes we're not in love with it. Sometimes it's awful. So my whole point is like, let me give you the facts and the information so that you're able to do that. Hence the name, Stop Parenting Alone. But I work with teachers. I work with parents. I work with anyone that works with children. Great. Thank you so much. So we all know that there's no handbook, there's no manual for how to be a parent. And one of the things that I think about a lot, just as I work with families, is that when you're dealing with a sleep issue, it's a very specific defined behavioral issue, but there's so much more out there that can be going on. And I personally have teenagers and as my kids have gotten older, there's so many times where I've been like, what, what do I do about this? Who do I talk to? Who do I go to for help? It's not just like this one defined issue. And so that's why we love your program. And so I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about it. What made you decide to start it? How did it all kind of come together? Well, my program began from me getting really angry while I was getting my master's. So a fiery type person. But what I learned while I was getting my master's program, and again, I had a two-year-old in my home, is that there's so many things that we intervene in psychotherapy, but we know based on the science of how the brain develops and how human beings develop. There's a lot of things that we can do to prevent a lot of the things that we worry about, right? People worry about anxious teens and depressed teens and drug abuse. People worry about how they're going to get into college and all of these things that happens because of our development. So it's nature, nurture, and experiences. 
And for me, when I learned that in school, I was like, why don't we tell parents and teachers and people that work with young children and teenagers this information so that we can prevent a lot of the problems? So I think that that's the whole point. And no, there is no manual on how you're going to raise your individual child. Children are kind of like Ikea furniture, you know, (laughs) you have all the parts and you know you have to put them together, but you don't know how because the instructions are kind of like really bad, right? <laughs> and what my purpose is to say, I actually know how to put the parts together. And there is a way to put the parts together, but it has to be very individual to who you are raising. And by the way, somebody put your parts together too. And you are also, the biggest part of who your children become is how you respond to them. And that's the piece that when parents get stuck, it's because they're not taking a good look at themselves and how they are experiencing what their child is experiencing. And they may be projecting themselves onto their child. And that's not, I mean, that's normal because that's what we do as humans, but that's something that parents really need to think about. You know, I always tell parents that one of the hardest things that we have to do as parents is not let out all of our own stuff when our children push every one of our buttons. You know, how do you sit there when you're so mad or you're so frustrated? You're like, why did you do that? And breathe through it and be like, okay, I'm not going to let it out. I'm just going to be calm, even though, oh my God, what did you do? (laughs) And I would say that back to this idea of each of us are individuals, including our children, right? When a parent is feeling that way, it's an opportunity for us to go, whoa, why am I so triggered? What does this remind me of? What am I afraid of? Mm. Where do I need to seek answers? Mm-hmm. Because that's what's actually happening in that moment, right? Like our brain is an association machine. It uses past experiences and puts that information into what's happening in the present. So sometimes we're parenting with information from like 1992, Because something that our child is doing, we're associating to something that happened in the past. So we're not actually here and present. So parenting is one of the hardest human transitions because our children force us to take a look at things that maybe we made it all the way to 20, 30, 40, not like ignoring, but you can't ignore it anymore, right? So if you had a really hard time in elementary school, guess what? The first time your child has a little tiny social emotional problem with friends in elementary school, the little tiny eight-year-old in you is going to be like, that happened to me. And now I have the power because I am an adult and now I can take care of that little bully. And actually, no, that other child is also eight years old. So your eight-year-old cannot help your eight-year-old be a better friend. Your eight-year-old has to talk to you, the adult, and say, you know, I remember this and it was so hard. And what do I wish an adult would have told me then? So true. So true. So true. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Let me say something again to that question of like, how do we figure out for ourselves what we have to do? In the parenting journey, zero to five, something that the parent needs to work on is how to respond to rejection and conflict. Little tiny people reject and are in conflict with you multiple times a day because most of us as adults are getting in the way of their beautiful toddler preschool exploration. To them, that 
water bottle is a rocket ship, a plane, something to put in your mouth, something to hit your head with, something to throw. But for us, it's like, it's a water bottle and I need to leave the house because I got to drop you off at the preschool or I'm going to be late for work. So there's this constant conflict and rejection with the littles, right? So in the parenting journey, what the parent has to do is take a second look or a third look or a fourth look at how do I manage conflict and rejection. In the elementary school years, for you to be a good parent, what's going to bubble up for you is what you think about relationship and friendship. Most of us figured out what it means to be a friend and how we relate to others in elementary school. So like for some of us, we haven't questioned what it means to be a friend since we were 10. That's not good. Like if you're 30, 40, 50, you really need to take a second look. It's like, what does it really mean to be a friend? And that is going to trigger the bejesus out of you when you walk into an elementary school, like friendship, so the, the social norms and social rules, right? But But you have your own story. You made up your mind when you were in elementary school, right? And then in adolescence, it's an opportunity to really take a look at how you handle control. You know, are you obsessively trying to hold on to things? And do you know how to flow? Because with an adolescent, they have to pull away from you. That's the whole point, right? You're at the end of the journey. So you have to know, well, how do I handle control? And am I very rigid or am I too fluid? How do I manage control? And also, how do you manage grief and loss? Because the number one feeling in adolescence is loss. And finally, how do you handle uncertainty? That's what a parent has to do before you even say one clean scent to your child. You know? What you said about the toddler is so funny because, I mean, I'm a little bit older. Four kids later, I keep on reminding myself with my fourth one, she's not mad at me. Like the tantrum comes from somewhere else where with my first one, 14 years ago, I didn't know that, you know, I was a lot younger. <laughs> I didn't know all that parenting stuff. And now it's like, okay, I just have to get through this tantrum. I have to understand that the tantrum is coming from yeah. something else. So yeah, no, yeah, very good point. Um, question to you, what was the biggest challenge you found yourself so far as a parent? I know you have older kids, but so far, what has been the biggest challenge for you? So I have a 14 and a 17 year old. So I wouldn't call it a challenge. I would call it a complete and utter failure. <laughs> so what I believe that I quote unquote failed at is my children being bilingual. It's so funny, right? Because I had all the information. Here I am. I know exactly how to keep a kid bilingual. I didn't. And I fell for something that a lot of us as parents do, especially in the world that we live today with being so busy and everything. You know, I am Colombian, but I was raised in the United States. So in a way, I communicate better in English. Although I'm fully bilingual. I write it. Same. I read it. Right. So like when you go to a psychoanalyst, when you go to somebody that's doing analysis, the thing that you think about of people laying down on a couch, they actually make you speak in your mother tongue. And for me, if I had to choose, I wouldn't choose Spanish. I would choose English. Like that's how I express myself best. Right. So what happened? The challenge was the thing that a lot of us do. It was more comfortable for me. You have to speak 30% of the time in the second language or else the child loses it. 
Funny that you say that because my husband's Argentinian. I'm born in the United States, but my family's Colombian. All of our parents speak Spanish and me and my husband speak English to each other all the time. And my kid's first language was Spanish. They went to school not knowing one word of English. And now in the home, all we do is talk English. And I mean, they understand it. So that's what happened to me, right? Like my daughter, I spoke to her in Spanish the whole time, took her to her little preschool at three. I was living in Los Angeles then. And then she came home talking in English and I had, you know, my little infant. I'm like, ah, it. you know, you have to go that extra mile that 30% of the time the child has to be exposed to the second language. And I fell for the number one mistake that parents make. I did what was comfortable rather than what was correct. But, but it's interesting because I think that that speaks also to when you're in the moment trying to be very conscious, like this is how I'm going to react to you when something pushes my buttons or I need to manage some sort of behavior. You know, when you're in that moment, you're going to often do what's easiest. And if yeah. what's easiest is to speak English, that's what you're going to do. Exactly. So, like, what I've seen, and I, I don't have that many bilingual friends, but comparing like Jess and her situation, which we've had many conversations about this to a friend of mine who's first generation and grew up in Venezuela, her husband grew up in Venezuela, her children speak a lot of Spanish. But yes, that's only because that's her more comfortable language, even though she speaks fluent English. Exactly. The why is because both my husband and I, he's Cuban American, English is more comfortable. But again, that is one of those parenting things, right? Sometimes the mistake we make is like, we make the mistake of what's comfortable. And to normalize it for everybody, because I don't want any parent listening to this and like beating themselves up because no. you're already doing that. And I don't want to add to it. I don't want to be part of the problem. Um, our brain does that, right? Our brain is efficient, not right. smart. It finds the quickest, fastest way to a solution. And so what was challenging for me? Keeping my children bilingual. They don't speak it well. They speak it very broken, but they understand it 100%. So yes, so that was my challenge. And I know that that challenge was because I went with what was comfortable. And if anybody's listening, if you want a bilingual child, they have to use and hear the second language 30% of the time. Yeah. So what are the most common parenting issues that people come to you with? What sorts of struggles do you hear about most often? So in the early years, the most common struggle is the tantrum and not understanding why children tend to have that big explosion of emotion and feeling like they're doing something wrong because their little person is screaming at them or throwing something at them or hitting them or spitting at them mm -hmm. or biting. Or when you give them the beans in the red plate rather than the blue plate that they were expecting. I get a lot in the early years, the struggle of choosing a preschool and doing the transition into preschool. And in the early years, because I do a lot of development and social emotional learning, I tend to see parents with children three and older primarily because the little tiny ones, they actually see you guys because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're really, really worried about sleep. The other big piece is picky eating. I get a lot of questions around picky eating and I get a lot of questions around kind of children that can't settle. And sometimes it is because they are sleep deprived, but other times it's because there is a sensory disbalance. And a lot of them end up with a sleep consultant. And then you guys tell them, yes, I can help you with the sleep, but this is a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. I tend to see parents that 
somebody teacher or a sleep consultant or their pediatrician has told them this may be sensory processing. So that's in the early years. And in the elementary school years, it's children that are having a hard time, have kind of like given up wanting to learn. And that's really unusual for anybody third grade and younger. A teenager that tells you they hate math and they don't want to do it and they're putting it off, that's more normative for their age group kindergarten, first, second grader that is avoiding writing or reading or trying to learn something. So I get that. And I also get the child that is having a hard time with friendships. They're either the person that is hurting others or they're the person that somebody's hurting them. And then in the adolescent years, because I only work with parents, I don't necessarily work with the child. In the adolescent years, I get a lot of parents where their relationship has kind of broken. But what I see most common today with teenagers is a lot of anxiety. Anxiety towards the future, anxiety towards being able to perform in the way that the school is asking them to perform. And it's the opposite, I guess, of when I was growing up in the 80s, because I'm a 51-year-old woman, they want to have the 4.9 and the three APs, and they don't feel good enough if they're not doing that, because we've created this environment of, like, being something. So that's what I see most. It's the the race to nowhere <laughs> yes. for teenagers. <laughs> I'm yes. in the same place, and as are you probably with the 17-year-old. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And we've kind of sold them a lie, right? That, you know, college is everything. I was like, no, it's not. College is the beginning. And we're trying to get them to this finish line, but it's not a finish line. Like when they get to the finish line, it's like it begins again, and it feels like a lot. So definitely a lot of issues based on the age group. It seems like every age group has their own issues. Yes. Uh, what are the big transitions for parents that get in the way of their relationship with their kids that you see? I think that in the early years, get yourself a child development book. Get yourself a book like Touch Points. That's actually my favorite, Ra- Brazelton's Touch Points. Why do I love Brazelton's Touch Points? Because it tells you what to expect. And I think that a lot of the time we think that something's wrong with our child when it's actually just part of development. Back to this idea of tantrums. The statistic is three major tantrums per hour, one minor conflict every three minutes. Wow. Oh my God, I can't. (laughs) I can't. And you're, you're living it. Every time I speak at a preschool, I'm like, it's three major tantrums per hour, one minor conflict every three minutes. You know, I should remind myself when my daughter gets home today. Just remind myself about that statistics. It's normal. <laughs> so then you feel normal. That's yeah. really or- helpful to hear because I think that so many parents whose children are having tantrums think that there's something wrong with their child. They're embarrassed. Right. What's wrong and with them as a and, parent? And right. society is t- yes, and society is telling the parent, be more cruel. You should punish. Like rewards. Blah, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, no, it's just development. Like they get overstimulated and their memory. And there's so many things that are happening with the toddler. And like in elementary school, if you know development, you know that somewhere in third grade, that's when you find your best friend. And that's when the groups split up. And then you have this chaos of children trying to figure out, well, this is my best friend and I used to spend time with you, but I really want to spend time with them. And then the adults around them are calling them bullies and mean and this and that. And it's like, no, it's a natural development of a transition. And then in the teenage years, if you know development, you know that when they talk back, 
that's actually a prefrontal cortex in action. What does the prefrontal cortex and the upper cortex of the brain do? Makes decisions by looking at things in multiple ways. So when a teenager is like, no, that's not the way it is. We, the adults, see it as disrespect, but actually that's debate. And actually you have to stop, breathe and be like, oh, they're debating. They're just doing it poorly. Like my favorite quote to teenagers is like, listen, your message is really, really good. Your delivery sucks. Work on the delivery. So that's what I want the teenager to do. So back to this idea of what is hard for parents, not knowing that something that their child is doing is development. So I would say always when you think, instead of saying what's wrong, ask yourself what's changing. This is for all age groups like that. Now, what's wrong? What's changing? You guys know this. You are sleep consultants. Yeah. Two-year-olds, they wake up. Why do they wake up in the middle of the night? Yeah. What's changing? The communication, their verbal ability. Their brain is going, wake up, little person. Talk. Practice (laughs) talking. That's what the brain is doing, right? And then what does the parent do? They walk into the bedroom and they're like, oh, let's sleep. And then they're talking. And then the brain, yes, yes, adult, let's talk to one another in the middle of the night. And I always tell parents, listen, there's been a burst in language. Their brain is waking them up to speak. So the two-year-old, when you go into the room to put them back, don't say a word, just go, because if you talk, then the brain gets exactly what it woke up for. Or like the one-year-old that wakes up in the middle of the night. Why does the one-year-old wake up in the middle of the night? Because they want to move. They want to walk. Their brain wakes them up, right? So it's a developmental reason for the wakefulness. Yes, for the sleep regressions, absolutely. 100%. So, So I would say that the biggest thing is like parents not understanding development. And to be fair, There's not enough information out there for parents on development. Good information. There isn't. And pediatricians, you have to like corner them in your pediatric appointment for them to give you the kind of milestones. They have them. So ask for them, by the way. Yeah, I don't actually feel like they think of that as really their role. In many cases, I feel like you go to the pediatrician and they're checking off the medical stuff, making sure that your child has met certain markers. I feel like they're always asking my kids, like when they were little, what kind of foods are you eating? What do you like to do? That kind of stuff. But I don't really feel like my pediatrician ever gave us guidance on like, this is what to expect from your child behaviorally at this stage. And this is what's normal. And I do feel like you have to really go out and seek that information. And there is a wide range of what's normal still even within that. And Linda, we always hear it also with our clients with sleep. The pediatrician's like, just close the door, do cry it out and you're fine. And just you'll forget about it. And it's like, no, you can't do cry it out with a two-year-old. No. You can't just leave a two-year-old screaming and crying and having a panic attack in the dark. So same thing, they don't give us direction in development, but with sleep, I feel like a lot of it is also completely misguided. Yes. Oh, very much so. I always tell parents of two-year-olds that your two-year-old now has a lot of words. And when your child was a baby, you probably thought to yourself, if only you could tell me what it is that you need. And now here's your two-year-old telling you all over the place what they want you to do. And that's great. That's really normal. That's all appropriate for their development. It doesn't mean you have to do everything that your two-year-old tells you that they want you to do. (laughs) Exactly. And then back to this idea of what is a transition that parents have a really hard time with. 
when a child goes from infancy where you do, you absolutely have to respond to an infant. You have to respond to the eight-month-old, to the 10-month-old, to the four-month-old. But once they're two, once they're like 15 months, once they're like fully moving, that is the first time that you have to start setting boundaries. And that is also the first time where distraction alone doesn't work. Mm -mm. And that is the first time when you are giving them emotional intelligence. Because when you say, no, baby, we cannot play with the crystal vase. And your child falls to the ground screaming bloody murder. Vase, vase, vase. (laughs) That is the opportunity for the parent to say, my child is practicing frustration. And that transition is incredibly difficult for parents because back to this idea of what do I have to deal with then? Well, if you are somebody that you always avoid conflict and or the emotion of sadness or frustration, you're going to try to fix it for your child rather than what you're supposed to do, which is to just sit with the frustration. So that is a big transition. And for the adolescent parent, it's letting go of making decisions for them. The what were you thinking and why didn't you come to me before your head is on fire is an inappropriate question in adolescence because they're not supposed to come to us to solve their problems. Part of learning to launch into adulthood is to try to figure out a problem on their own. That's why they only come to us when their head is on fire. And it's also terrifying. It's so terrifying because you're like, but I have the answer, Lena. Why can't I just give it to them? Because then they're not going to launch into adulthood. Allowing them to fail, allowing them to go through the process and learning that that was a bad decision. What's that saying about like strong roots and like good wings or whatever? You want them to have good, strong roots with the family, but you need to give them wings to fly and go out in the world. And we can't always protect them like we did when they were six months old. (laughs) And that's ginormous transition in adolescence and I am now a parent of adolescence and before I used to talk to parents about it and very academic and very nice and now it's like I feel the pain of that it's terrifying it's terrifying like I know that my daughter that she's trying to get into college for soccer and I know that she has to write these emails to these coaches that she's basically dating (laughs) because they have to choose her right and I want to go in there and be like did you send did you talk them back but I'm not And it's terrifying because then it's like, well, if she doesn't call this coach that is interested in her play, she won't make the team. Right. It's a big consequence, but I have to say it once and let it go or predict for her. Hey, baby, I'm going to remind you now and I'm going to remind you again on Friday and you can call me annoying, but that's the plan. Or when do you want me to remind you? And then we can work together. I always say my daughter, who's my 17 year old, learns things the hard way. I mean, that's how she goes through life and she does learn from it. I mean, yeah, that's how she chooses to do it. (laughs) Yeah, that in the adolescent years, the transition into they're not coming to you to fix a problem until their head's on fire because actually they're figuring out how to fix problems, which we want them to do so that they can launch into adulthood. Right. So do you have any sort of guidance or recommendations for parents on how to make their journey easier? So any tips or tactics that you feel like you often say to parents that help them with their own emotional regulation? How does that kind of play out in your work? Get really good at pausing. And what do I mean by that? 
a lot of the time when something happens with our child, no matter how old they are, we immediately get into action. And I'd much rather you stop, breathe, find your feet, loosen three parts of your body, and then engage. So if you do that, it will take you 45 seconds. But those 45 seconds will take you out of the automatic response of your nervous system. Because when something happens with our children, we will either go into fight and flee or freeze. And there's absolutely zero that you can do because our nervous system responds automatically. So when something happens with our children, it will go into one of the three energetic levels of the nervous system. The nervous system is the alarm of our body. So make sure that you take that moment to breathe, to find your feet, because you want to be in your thinking brain. You don't want to be in high alert. And a lot of us get into high alert. So I think that that's the number one parenting tip that I can give you. And the second tip is everybody is so desperate for their children to self-regulate, to do it on their own. And the reality is that our attention and our connection and our love is part of the recipe for development. So holding your child, helping your child, being present to your child's emotions is necessary for them to fill themselves with love so that when they get older, they can tap into that bank that you gave them when they were young. I think that Sometimes that's where we trip up because when our children have all of these really big feelings and really hard feelings, it's sometimes hard to be there with them in that because they're often even pushing us away. And so knowing that sometimes just being there and being present with them and not running away in that moment is actually the most useful thing, even if it feels really hard. The most loving thing that we can say to a child in any age group is, yes, you're right. This is really, really hard. Then silence and sit with them. Or if they're asking you to step out, step out and then check in later. Hashtag sit in the dark with them. (laughs) And I want every parent that is listening to this to know that for me as a child to learn how to manage frustration, I must in my body and allow that wave to come in and out and don't move them so quickly through emotion. Yeah, so true. So what's the best way for parents to contact you? The best way to reach me is to go to my website, stopparentingalone.com. There you can learn everything about my work and how I help parents and schools. There's blogs and there's information about my parenting membership. How do you work with me? How do I work with parents? One way is with a parenting consultation. You meet with me on telehealth because it's all online 
and I listen to you for an hour and a half and together we work for solution. I tell you the why of your children's behavior, the solution, and I give you a plan of action. The other way is to join my membership. My membership is called the Online Parenting Support and in that membership you get once a week Zoom call where I answer the questions of the people on the call and also a private Facebook group where I answer the questions of the people in the Facebook group within 48 hours, but not on Saturday and Sunday because I practice what I preach. And you also have a private area of my website where all of these questions and answers have been posted and saved and labeled in age and topic since 2016. So pretty much I am pretty certain that if you have a normative development question about your child, you will find it in the area where we have for members to look up answers. And that's how you work with me. And that's what I do. And I do that because, as I said before, my mission is for caregivers and adults who take care of children to fall in love with that journey. Because we're not always in love with it. You know, sometimes we're frustrated by it. Sometimes we are regretting that we did it. So those are the great ways to reach out to me and to work with me. And if you want to follow kind of like my day-to-day happenings, I am on Instagram at parenting expert. And also, if you want to follow my business, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Stop Parenting Alone. That was super helpful and informative, Lena. We're so happy that you were here with us today. Thank you for being here with Linda and I, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us today.